Ethiopia, which until recently was the most stable country in the Horn of Africa, is now embroiled in a civil war, the escalation of which may have calamitous consequences, including genocide. Did you know that Ethiopia defies most African history and standards in at least two ways? First, it was never colonized like most of Africa and has remained an independent nation for, well, for most of its history. And second, unlike most other African countries, it is a multinational federal system, meaning that it's a country in which the boundaries of its 10 regional states are drawn to reflect the identities of the different nations within the country of Ethiopia. Hey there, news peelers. Today is August 27, 2021. And this is Adele with Appeal.News. Once a week, we select a news item and peel the history behind it to gain perspective from the past. <laughs> oh boy, sometimes history gives us a good laugh. Sometimes it offends. And sometimes it just, it just shocks. Like, did that really happen? I'm telling you. You can't make up some of this stuff that happened in our past. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink or both and let's get into it. Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed of Ethiopia was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2019 but now he's calling on all capable Ethiopians to join the federal government against Ethiopia's Tigray region. Tigray and his people have been at the center of this conflict for the last 10 months. In June, Tigray People's Liberation Front shockingly defeated Ethiopia's government military forces and captured the regional capital of Tigray, a development that has changed the nature of the conflict and may turn it into a wide-scale civil war, one that could disrupt a geopolitically important region, the Horn of Africa. Already, reports indicate massacres, sexual assaults, and ethnic cleansing. About 2 million people have been dislocated, and famine is now an imminent danger for hundreds of thousands of people. To better understand the history of Ethiopia, including America's perception of constant warfare and famine there, we spoke with Mr. Itana Dinka, who joined us from London. Professor Dinka was born in Ethiopia and teaches African history at James Madison University. He has written extensively about Ethiopia's history, including a book titled Society, Revolution, and Military Intervention in Ethiopian Politics. A link to Professor Dinka's academic homepage, which includes a list of his publications and accomplishments, is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Professor Dinka and I peel the history behind this news.
Dr. Dinka, it is such a pleasure to have you on our program today. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Dr. Dinka, let's directly go to the current dangerous developments in Ethiopia. Is Ethiopia plunging into another war, a civil war? Thank you very much for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, um, so this is a very important question. Um, this, this war, um, as is now, was avoidable. Avoidable? Uh, it, it was avoidable. It shouldn't have happened in the first place. Uh, it was a seriously miscalculated decision. Uh, so you say it shouldn't have happened. That means the war is now full throttle going on now. Yes, it could yes. have been avoided any any problem because it's a political uh, difference uh, between the federal government, particularly the Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, and uh, the nationalities in the country that laid into this war. So many people say war is integrated. Of course, there is a war integrated, very catastrophic war, but the prime minister is in conflict with every nationalities in the country because he wanted to undermine, undercut the regional autonomy by concentrating power into the hands of the federal government. Now, People who knows Ethiopia very well may ask, is Ethiopian state concentrating power at the center for centuries? What is new with Abiyan? People may ask about that. Okay. Uh, look, by 1991, uh -huh. uh, when the military regime was defeated by rebels in the north and in the south, uh, and the rebels came to power, everybody in Ethiopia thought that political difference would not lead us into war again in, in, in the country. But it happened again this time. Now, the issue that took Ethiopia into war between 1975 and 1991 was addressed at least constitutionally under the leadership of Ethiopian um, uh, the EPRDF, Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front. The constitution allowed every nationality uh, to constitute their own regional state, to administer their own uh, issues, but came to be dominated by the federal government again. How came to be dominated by the federal government again. Yes, I'm telling you the difference between EPRDF and Abina. The federal government during EPRDF time, during Meles uh, Zenawi, during Haile Mariam de Salim, um, concentrated power and ruled the country through party structures instead of the formal governmental structure that was established by the constitution, but they did not threaten identities of nationalities. The culture, the language, historical perspectives of nationalities have never been threatened, but Abi and his allies now threatened the identities, the they cultural the identities. identities. Yes, yes. 
And uh, Professor Denka, if I may interrupt you, if I may interrupt you for one moment, particularly for our American audience, you keep on using the word nationalities. Ethiopia is a nation, yet you keep on saying nationalities. Explain that a little bit. Is that like the United Kingdom, and you have the Welsh and the Scottish, and the, is is that is that an analogy to what you're? Uh, very much you? similar. Very much similar. Ethiopia is a country of nations, very huge nations. Oh, is and that why it's been called an empire for the longest time? Because there are several oh, nations oh. with it. I see. Yeah. Yes. So let, let me finish with this. Please, please. The reason, the reason that led Ethiopia into war uh -huh. between 1970s and 1991 was because the nationalities were threatened. Their very existence was threatened under the imperial regime, under the military regime. So the 1995 constitution fully recognized the identities, their rights to rule themselves considerable constitutional autonomy. But That's a major progress, that right? Yeah, that constitutional right was not fully implemented, but it was a revolutionary step given the nature of the Ethiopian state. Now, Abiy Ahmed wanted to reverse that constitutional arrangement without declaring it fully, formally, to the country. It was felt throughout the country. So, other regional states outside Tigray were very weak. They have no military ability to confront the central government. They had no tools to confront the federal government. But Tigray had both the courage and military ability to confront the central government. That is what led Ethiopia into a country. And let me finish with this. Please. The reason why I say this war is avoidable is that the prime minister has consolidated his power in many parts of the country and he could have easily negotiated or even renegotiated with solid regional entities like Tigray, Oromia, Somalia, Afar, and many others, but he preferred to go to war. The irony, I guess, is that this, this president actually won the Nobel Peace Prize recently. Uh, Perfect. Uh, what was that? <laughs> Why did he win the Peace Prize? Uh, what had he done? What had he accomplished to win that? Look, this is a very tricky question. Um, and it's very important to address. Very important one. I'm because, glad I asked it, please. Go ahead. Yes. In, in October 2019, uh, all of the Western world believed that Abi Ahmed is a man of peace for a number of reasons. The first reason is that he ended a time of military confrontation, military standoff between Ethiopia and Eritrea. And you know, ended the buffer zone that separated the two countries for years and um, declared the end of the war and Ethiopia and Eritrea came. So he ended the war with another nation. We're not talking about conflict inside the country. With another nation. Exactly. Okay. 
but it is very important for a number of reasons because Eritrea was part of Ethiopia. It seceded from Ethiopia in 1993, and it was in a war with Ethiopia between 1998 and 2000, but the conflict um, uh, remained in place. There was a situation of no war, no peace between Ethiopia and Eritrea. There were serious, serious confrontations in the border areas. And Abi now uh, talked to Eritrea and ended that confrontation. Then people thought this is a peace agreement, but that was a war pact. People did not know the agreement between Abi and Isaiah Saforke of Eritrea was not a peace agreement between Ethiopia and Eritrea. It was a war pact between Abi government and Isaiah Saforke's government to fight Tigray. And I, I, I posted this on Facebook the same day Abi Ahmed was given the Nobel Peace Prize. The Norwegian institution will regret this decision because Abi is a man of war, not a man of peace. There was, of course, another reason why the world was very much convinced because at home also, um, thousands of political prisoners were released, not just under Abi, but um, under his predecessor, Haile Mariam Bessali, and he completed releasing political prisoners. He, he uh, allowed everybody to speak freely, to assemble freely, and that was a huge achievement in Ethiopia. But of for somebody who knows Ethiopia very closely, that was not going to last very, very long. It, it was visible that it is not going to last. Today, in any part of Ethiopia, freedom of expression is curtailed. Freedom of assembly is already curtailed. Just in less Are they using the war as an excuse to do that? No, it, it began before the beginning of the war because of the policy of the prime minister himself, who wanted a confrontation with solid nationalities in the country. He wanted to undermine their nationalism. If you take, for example, Oromo nationalism, Somali nationalism, Tigray nationalism, these were very solid nationalism uh, built over the previous decades against the um, challenges of the Ethiopian empire. And, Fortunately, the Ethiopian Empire was not disintegrated because the 1995 constitution, which is formally still in office and in work, um, offered um, considerable autonomy and recognition, uh, recognition of their identities for the nationalities. Speaking of nationalities, um, Dr. Denka, in a previous phone call you and I had, uh, I, I frankly shared with you that I'm baffled by how many different ethnicities, which now you term as nationalities, uh, and I appreciate why you're saying that now, exist in Ethiopia. And you you responded to me with this phrase. <laughs> you said, Ethiopia defies standards in Africa. What did you mean by that? Right. Um, if you If you look at many African countries today, uh, although there are several solid uh, identities, cultural uh, or ethnic identities, no African country is very courageous to organize their state structure based on linguistic boundaries or ethno-linguistic boundaries. 
Ethiopia decided to define its regional states and state boundaries based on linguistic boundaries, because that is what plunged the country into a brink of collapse by 1991. Now, when the rebels won the war against the military regime, the groups, political groups that were feared to disintegrate the country, pulled back the country from a brink of collapse, and they offered recognition of, recognition of identities for all nationalities, and regional states were allowed. And in 1995, that was recognized in the constitution. And that's they a model were, that doesn't exist in, uh, that doesn't generally exist in other African countries, correct? Identities are there, but no state was very courageous to, to uh, give that formal, formal recognition and the constitutional uh, recognition. In fact, after independence, this was a kind of taboo uh, in African uh, A taboo country. in Africa. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Many countries, many countries uh, developed a model of nation building um, approach, uh, meaning building their state uh, around certain dominant uh, national identity, which failed spectacularly in many parts of Africa and failed considerably in Ethiopia, not only failing in Ethiopia, it backfired seriously. Backfired. And now Abi wanted to restore something that failed and backfired already. This kind of approach was not new. It was attempted and failed by painting every page of the history of the country with bloods of generations. That is what the prime minister is now trying to implement and the world awarded him a Nobel Peace Prize because uh, not aware of who he is. So uh, when we talk about nationalities, I just want to go back to an analogy and perhaps a gross analogy, but from a distance, this is what I'm familiar with. So the, the regional state models of uh, in Ethiopia are grossly similar to that of UK, as I mentioned prior, where the Scottish have sort of their own region, the English and the Welsh. It's not like the United States where there's South Dakota, Mississippi or California and any, uh, it really was built as a region and then all sorts of nationalities came in and out of it, right? Of course, we're not talking about Native Americans. That's a whole different conversation. Is, is, is my analogy to the UK still stand? It's largely similar, but different also. Oh. Similar because um, the, the nationalities have their own states. There are 10 regional states today. Nine of them were named after certain larger or majority national group in the region. Oromia region, for example, is named after the Oromo nation. The Somali region is named after Somali, and Tigray region is named after the Tigray identity. So is Amar. But it like in the UK, we have England, we have Welsh, Scottish, 
and we have Irish um, too, Northern Ireland. Yeah. But in Ethiopia, we have over 80 ethnic groups. 80? Wow. 80. 80, yeah. Which means that some of these dominant regions are dominated by a nationality and they have sub subgroups if you will sub nationality exactly, exactly. there see. is there is um an example for this um what is the region which is known as southern nations nationalities and peoples is a region of about 56 nationalities oh, but wow. still that regional state itself is named Southern nations, nationalities, and peoples region. Oh wow! Um, but it, it 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 is not named after a particular group because they are fifty six in number, very small um, identities. But recognizing them through um, devolved administration, through uh, cultural um, exercise, and a number of linguistic rights, um, they were given uh, rights. Dr. Dinka, when do we use the word ethnicity and when do we use the word nationality? In the case of UK, you know, uh, Scotland is a nation, it, it, they're, they're united. But um, let's say in the case of China, they're all ethnicities, right? <laughs> Even though they're in 40, 60, 100 million, for example, you know, for example, the, the, the Turkic, the Muslim Turkic uh, region uh, is an ethnicity, it's not a nation. Is that just a matter of uh, the political nature of each country, or is there a specific academic reason for this as well? Yeah, yeah you raised a very uh, uh, tricky question um, because this word ethnicity uh, has been used in academic writing as and in legal documents as yeah, in, yeah. A of, in a number of differing uh, situations. Mm -hmm. um, but there is no fully agreed upon uh, definition for uh, ethnicities. Um, in the UK, for example, ethnicity refers to races. Okay, when you see certain legal documents, it asks you about ethnicity, which means are you black African or Asian or um, white or ethnicity refers to uh, this kind of this kind of categories in the UK, for example, uh -huh. in academic writings, people use it interchangeably only to replace this colonial invention, which refers to um, ethno-cultural identities or cultural identities of people as tribes. Okay, so as there tribes. is no single agreed upon ethnicity, but there is there is something in this. Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard the people referring uh, or writers referring to uh, Scottish uh, as ethnic group? No. When it comes to Africa and other parts of Africa, other parts of the world, people usually uh, prefer to use this word ethnicity. Or, or even ethnicity. tribes, as you, as you I mentioned. It's, it's a departure, but it's yeah. still very close to that. So Interesting. That it, word nation is very important. If English is a nation, if Scottish is a nation, if Welsh is a nation, so is Yoruba, so is Igbo, so is Oromo, so is Somali uh, in, in uh, the continent of Africa. That's a great point. I'm glad, I'm glad I asked that question and we discussed that 
uh, that tricky point. And, and just closing this segment, and this is not something that um, we really need to spend that much time on, uh, Dr. Dinka. What role is religion playing in this conflict? Uh, I know Ethiopia, I wouldn't say split, but it has Islamic presence and it has a Christian, I think it's Christian dominated. Uh, if, if you could just clarify that point for me, please. Religion is a very important factor in Ethiopia. <laughs> Maybe uh, we should have a whole episode on it in the future. Yeah, it's, it's a very important factor uh, in Ethiopia. Um, Islam is a single largest religious group, and not many people recognize that because Ethiopia... I, I thought it was Christianity. Oh, my bad. Okay. I'll come to that in a moment. Ethiopia introduced itself to the world as a Christian state. Yeah, the country of Christianity. Okay. Yeah. If you if if you um, uh, count every religious group in the country, Islam is the largest single religious block. But oh, if you wow. add all categories of Christianity together, am I uh, am I clear? If you add yeah. all categories of Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, Catholicism, Protestant, Evangelical, Pentecostal. The largest, the single largest religious group in the country. People um, outside Ethiopia, particularly in the Western world, might be surprised to to hear this. But this is in the in the census of the country, which was now very old, about fifteen years ago. Now, uh, Ethiopia referred to itself as a Christian state um, for for a very good reason uh, during imperial time, Islam was not recognized. Whether oh. you are Islam uh, or non-believer uh, or any form of following any form of indigenous religion, before law, would you would be um, uh, counted as Orthodox Christian. And Interesting. The, country, the, the country historically um, relied on Christianity for its state ideology. Uh, the church had a considerable role in anointing emperors, and emperors um, usually uh, were able to rule the country in peace only when they had support of the church. It was a very wealthy institution. It supported um, the territorial conquests, which involved um, a number of violence uh, in the conquest of the South, particularly in the 19th century. Even before that, in what is today northern part of Ethiopia, Orthodox Christianity was very much attached to the state and, the, and vice versa. Uh, the state relied on the church and the church relied on uh, the state. So Orthodox Christianity was part of the state ideology. It was only by 1975 that Ethiopia, after the 1974 revolution, recognized Islam as as um, a separate and uh, rightful religion in the country. I see. Uh, other religious groups, even other denominations of Christianity were even persecuted for many, many years and came to be recognized only after uh, the 1995 constitution. They were there in the country uh, forever, but it was only the 1995 constitution that declared every religion uh, was uh, is equal before law, but that does not mean Orthodox Christianity is weakened. It's still a, a very powerful religious group 
in the country. I see. Uh, why don't we take a short break and then talk about, uh, you mentioned emperors, the long history of Ethiopia as an empire and as an independent country. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Anchor.fm. Download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor.fm to start your own podcast. It's easy. Anchor is free and it's got everything for you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other platforms, and there is no minimum audience requirement to monetize your podcast. People want to hear your story, your opinion, so share it with them through your own Anchor podcast. Dr. Dinka, you mentioned emperors and empires in the previous segment. Ethiopia was an empire for a long time, and we have many stories even. Uh, Queen Sheba, uh, King Solomon, Prophet Muhammad, and there's even uh, sort of operas about it, Verdi's opera, Aida. Um, so the story, the history of Ethiopia as an empire is fascinating. But what's also very fascinating to me is Ethiopia's history of independence is sort of that also defies Africa's standards. From what I gathered here is that it was not really colonized. Am I correct? Right. It's a fun, it's a fascinating question. Um, it, you know, Ethiopia uh, had a number of complex. Um, layers of um, history. Now, in 1896, on the 1st of March, uh, Ethiopia defeated Italy at, at the Battle of uh, Adwa. Uh, Ethiopia Italy, def defeated Italy, okay. Yes, in, in 1896. Uh, Italy was in what is today Eritrea, beginning in 1890. It conquered Eritrea of today, and it used Eritrea as a springboard to invade Ethiopia. But Ethiopia, Italy was very unfortunate. It was defeated uh, in, in a half-day battle by half -day an African and half-day battle by an African army. Uh, look, if you if you go to Ethiopia and ask people, particularly nationalist Ethiopians, they would tell you that we defeated Italy because we were brave people. We defeated Italy without any modern weapon and so on and so forth, because that is elements of nationalist um, orientation. Yeah, and yeah. And for Ethiopian nationalism. But, they, but they you're smiling. I think there's a different story here, right? There's more <laughs> so to this story, right? <laughs> there is a different story to that because Ethiopia's armament, Ethiopia's military equipment matched Italy. It had weapons that Italy had uh, by that time uh, because for years uh, before the Battle of Adwa, where Ethiopia defeated Italy, the um, core kingdom of the core kingdom, which, which is called Shah Kingdom, or the Kingdom of Shah, uh, 
which conquered states and the peoples in the South and established a modern Ethiopian state, was amassing weapons for years before the Battle of Adolf. And the establishment of the larger new Ethiopian empire provided human resource uh, and the famine that preceded um, uh, the battle for five years um, also provided a number of impulses that helped Ethiopia. But it's important to underscore that Ethiopia had enough weapon at, um, despite any other African country. Yeah, yeah. It had, it had experiences of fighting war um, with Egyptians, with each other, of course, many times. Mm-hmm. And when Italians came, uh, they, they got a match in the Horn of Africa, uh, which was very much strong, um, very much armed, and about 100,000 large. It, it, oh, the wow. Italian invading army was a little more than 20,000. They were overpowered um, and overmaneuvered, and it, it took only half day to defeat Italians at the Battle of Al. Now, looking at this, this is not an easy victory. It's a spectacular victory that changed the course of history in the Horn of Africa, because Ethiopia would be soon recognized as an independent state, and many Western countries would uh, compete to get land in Addis Ababa to open their embassy. And Ethiopia would play a number of regional uh, roles um, in the Horn of Africa, and in and as as we come to modern history, a number of continental assignments, including the establishment of organization of African unity. And for these reasons, Ethiopia became a pride of many Africans. It became an inspiration of independence for a number of African nationalists. It, it even became a symbol of uh, black ability and black sovereignty throughout the world. But there is black ability and black sovereignty. Yes, but there is another story which many people who doesn't know Ethiopia closely uh, do not recognize about Ethiopia. Ethiopia defeated colonialism in the north and practiced colonialism in the south. I'm sorry. It, say that again. It it yes. it, it it defeated. Colonialism Europe, in the north. Yeah, yes. European colonialists, but then it exercised co- colonialism itself? Is that in what you're saying? Yes. Yes, it defeated Italians in the north, but it became another colonizer in the southern half of the country. If you take the southern peripheries of Ethiopian uh, state today, they were all conquered after the Battle of Adwa. If you take the Somali region, if you take the Borana Oromo, if you take Gambella, if you take um, uh, many, many peripheries in, in, in Ethiopia, they were conquered after uh, Adwa. And Ethiopia's territory was consolidated on, on the ground and it was followed by the number of uh, treaties between the neighboring European colonizers was Britain, uh, and with France and with Italy, Ethiopia signed, you know, uh, border agreements um, that recognized its independence. But within Ethiopian territory, the government was Amharic government, 
a government that, that crafted a project to turn a huge African empire into an, a country with coherent national identity, which would be Amhara national identity. So uh, Amharic was imposed throughout the country. Schools had to use Amharic. Churches had to use Amharic, even when they are not Orthodox Christians. And a type of colonialism, which was practiced by France, England, Italy, Belgium, and other states in Africa was practiced in the southern part of the country. People lost their land to the Amhara colonizers, Amhara military commanders. They lost the status, they lost their states. They, they, um, the Amhara governors and elites, the judges, the police, administrators, and even the clergy looked down on identities of people in the Concord South. So um, when I say South, I'm speaking about a very huge territory, which is today the larger part of Ethiopia. And Abyssinia, the, the, literally the northern part of the country, and the Amara people became minority in the empire they established themselves. So when I say the Kunkur South in history, I'm talking about the Oromo nation, the Somali, and the Afar, uh, Gumus, and all other nationalities in the South. So they became uh, subnationalities whose identities were oppressed, whose lands were taken away, um, and Amara governors became colonizers in the South. That is the main reason why, beginning with the 1960s, a huge, considerable political issue in Ethiopian student movement, and that uh, became also influential political issues in the 1970s until today were about the right of nationalities and the issue of land. This How do you explain this um, uh, history yes. of uh, Ethiopian uh, colonization? The current challenges make so much more sense. Right. So in, in, in Ethiopian politics, um, wherever and whenever uh, it happens, the issue of nationalities and the issue of land deposition dominates the national politics all the time. And that is why any time political instability emerges in Ethiopia, Ethiopia always worries about disintegration. It's very surprising. A country with a long history of independence, a, a country with a long history of statehood, on the continent of Africa. Of empire. Anytime, anytime yes, anytime political stability appears, Ethiopia worries about disintegration because there are elephants in the house. Do I'm about to ask a question, and I know this 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 question could have a podcast onto its own, so I want to, but I, I, I have to ask it. Have foreign powers played a hand in 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 uh, getting uh, how do I say this so that, it's, that I don't come out as crass? But sort of have they have they played a hand with different ethnicities, different nationalities within Ethiopia by giving them arms, by getting it by by sort of giving them the go ahead to secede? 
uh, a smaller Ethiopia broken up into 10 different nations is a lot better for bigger nations to deal with, right? You don't have a large nation. Has that happened? Has, does Ethiopia have a long history of foreign intervention? I deal with a number of top secret uh, documents of Ethiopian history, uh, imperial documents. Uh, if you get a chance to see uh, top secret imperial documents, the imperial state always complains about this issue. England is arming this, this uh, nation against me. Uh, France is uh, arming this group against me. But that was that was that was a, um, uh, not a reflection was what was happening. Look, so it was not fully true. That's what you're saying. It, it, it's it's not fully true. It, look, Ethiopia. I told you before, Ethiopia possessed military equipment that Italy possessed in 1896. Ethiopia got all of this from Europe. It didn't produce itself. Yeah, it, it got from France. It got from Britain, mostly. Mm-hmm. And when it's like, even from Italy, for, the, for years before the Battle of Arab, and when Italy came, it plunged into a, a warehouse of military equipment that was imported from, uh, from uh, Europe. So Ethiopia was armed by Europe itself. Of course, it bought uh, as a weapon was gold, ivory, and a number of possessions which were uh, robbed from the Concord Sabres. Yeah. This is one. So I'm, I'm telling you that Europe was a player indirectly in the establishment of modern Ethiopian state. That's one thing. Second, mm-hmm. after the establishment of the state, European uh, uh, technical advisors played paramount importance in shaping Ethiopian state. But when you read Ethiopian history, you don't see all of this because historians are not willing to talk about this, to write about this, to discuss about this. So Ethiopian history uh, was always influenced, assisted in what it did by foreigners, particularly Europe, but it doesn't like to recognize this. It doesn't like to recognize that fact. Um, one last point um, in this segment is the following. The Italian occupation of Ethiopia um, in the 1930s, am I correct on that, on the time period? 1935 to 1941. 1941. That's not... Uh, I've noticed that pretty much all academics and historians don't consider that a colonization. It's just an occupation. Is that is that correct? Um, or- I, I think occupation fits uh, more, but uh, you can argue against that. Continue your question. Um, because it was has ha- did that several year occupation had have a lasting effect impact on Ethiopia. Interesting impacts. Um, uh, look, now, before 1935, that is before the invasion, Italian, the second Italian invasion, mm-hmm. um, like I said, a number of nationalities were conquered by force. Yeah. I, I don't get into the detail because there is no time for this. But exactly. the violence, the violence committed in the process was considerable. Wow. It, it was a very violent process. 
there were mass exterminations in the process of uh, conquest in the south, in the southwest, in the southeast. And in, in RC Oromo today, it, it's a still a fresh memory that people had their hands amputated by armies of Emperor Menelik during the conquest. That is after end of the battle uh, in order to um, force the people into submission. That was uh, um, military style of Abyssinia to force people into submission, amputating hands sometimes. So oh. I, I don't get into that detail, but Italians, when they came second time, uh, they found Ethiopia a different place than they had in 1896 because Ethiopia of 96 uh, was Ethiopia that matched Italy, but now it couldn't. Italy came with more advanced um, military uh, ability, uh, airplanes, um, helicopters, mortars, a number of a number of military uh, weapons that Ethiopia had none. That's one. The second second thing is uh, the class uh, of commanders that helped Ethiopia in in the battle against Italy were either too old or dead. The battle and, in eighteen ninety six. Those were yeah. now too old or just not. Yeah, or dead. And yeah. the new generation. Um, was literally a generation that lived without any war experience or uh, any without any serious military training. Anyway, it was very easy for Italians to break the Ethiopian Empire from north and from south, and it had fallen in months time, and they entered this era. But conquering Ethiopia was not that easy. Defeating it was very easy, but conquering it was not easy. Two things, two contradictory things. One, the, the oppressed nationalities considered Italians not as colonizers, but as liberators. Because oh, okay. they were wow. oppressed for who they were. They lost their land for Amara governors. And when Italians came and defeated, humiliated their colonizers, many nations in the South, including the Oromo, were too happy to receive Italians. But that was only short-lived. And Italians uh, started implementing their policies, which disappointed many parts of the country. Literally, it Italians were in control of towns, not rural areas. Rural areas were occupied by rebels in many parts of the country. Yeah. Uh, they ruled the country for five years. Now, your, your question, had Italian occupation had serious impact. Yes, in terms of infrastructure, for example, building roads, uh, bridges, um, industries and manufacturing uh, sites. Italians built many of them. And the road networkers uh, that Ethiopia had until very recently um, were a network of roads that were built by Italians, bridges. Uh, until uh, 10 or 15 years ago, Ethiopia used the road networks that Italians uh, built and left behind. So th that was one of the uh, lasting uh, impact. The other, the other impact which many historians don't like to recognize about Italian conquest was that it took off the lead 
of the Ethiopian Empire and they gave bracing space for religious identities and national identities in the country. It gives them space to organize. It gives them space to develop their national consciousness. But that was not the work of Italians. Italians humiliated the colonizers and helped the colonized in order to reorganize themselves, um, promote their religion. If you take evangelical Christianity, for example, in the Western part and many parts of Southern Ethiopia, it was during the Italian occupation that evangelical Christianity expanded the most in the country. Uh, and to some extent, Islam, because Ethiopian Orthodox Church, like I said at the beginning, was part of the state. It was a governor. It was a church that gives permission for other churches and religious uh, categories to exist. But during the Italian occupation, it was humiliated, lost its status. And this gave a, a considerable fascinating so that 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 is a lasting impact then yeah. that that second point that you made uh we'll be back after a short break to talk about ethiopia's economy we hope you are enjoying this podcast and if you are then why not treat us to a cup of coffee that's right for the price of a cup of coffee you too can become a monthly supporter of the peel.news podcast and it's easy just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and attributions to our theme music. And thank you. Dr. Denka, from time to time, we hear about famine in Ethiopia and see pictures of starving children. How frequently does this happen and why? And I'm, I'm, I'm speaking from sort of an American perspective, someone who's not familiar with Ethiopia. Right, right. Um, th there are contradictory uh, images about Ethiopia, not only outside the country, but even within, within the country uh, itself. Mm -hmm. Um, yes, famine happened many times in Ethiopia. Uh, the most catastrophic uh, famine happened in 1888-1892, um, uh, which was first um, instigated by um, Rinderpest epidemic and, and later on affected many parts of the Horn of Africa and it killed uh, thousands of uh, people. And drought, um, drought occurred particularly in northern part of the country in many times in history. It was a war-frequented uh, area for many, many uh, centuries. And resources were depleted um, um, because of uh, overpopulation, because of the wars and a number of other related reasons. Uh, another um, famine, I'm talking only the larger ones, uh, wow. happened uh, in early 1970s, uh, which also became an immediate, uh, an immediate cause for the fall of Emperor Haile Selassie's regime. Because the emperor was hiding what was happening in northern part of Ethiopia, especially in the province of Wallo, 
where uh, kids, um, women, and everybody was dying and over over a million people. What was the cause of that famine? It was drought. Drought. It was drought. And, and, and instead of uh, showing it to the world and getting help, the emperor was hiding and uh, celebrating his birthday. Um, <laughs> Oh my goodness! Instead of yeah. going out to UN and NGOs, he was uh, celebrating his birthday. Okay, right. Um, again, a third wave of famine happened in 1980s, and that was uh, caused by um, the, the military government. That was not entirely natural uh, famine because uh, the Derg regime in, in in charge of the country was fighting against. The rebels in the north, um, TPLF and the EPLF. So it, it wanted um, the, the country to starve. Uh, the part of the country they are fighting uh, was wanted to be starved. So that, that for me was partly uh, caused by military and uh, political decision. So um, I'm, I'm using these examples to illustrate what causes for me. Um, most of the time, drought, which is which occurs naturally, and, and of course, when you look at the longer history, it's, it's impact of uh, human activities. Uh, but lately, it also happened because direct action of um, government ruling the country. But this this issue of famine shaped the image of Ethiopia by and large, particularly the latest famine. Um, the famine of 1980s shaped the image of the country uh, around the world. A number of um, fundraising activities were organized in the UK, many parts of yeah, Europe and yeah. America, and many people uh, came to know Ethiopia for the first time was famine. Exactly. And Hence my it, question. You, you, you exactly. see why I'm asking that question. Yes. But the image of the other image of Ethiopia that dominates around the world is uh, about its independence, about Christianity, about civilization, <laughs> yeah. two confronting um, images uh, around the world. So famine uh, played a greater role, but Ethiopia is a country of considerable wealth. It had a large um, farms of coffee, um, it also exports heights and the skin, uh, cut, and number of oil seeds. Okay, the resource, the natural resource Ethiopia have is very immense. It's usually um, the failure of governments that, that exacerbate famine, uh, either deliberately uh, or by mistake. Otherwise, um, Ethiopia have enough resources to live on. Let's not only to live on, also to help other other states. Interesting. On the whole, do you think NGOs and uh, the UN, all these uh, sort of uh, outreach programs to to Ethiopia, especially when it comes to famine, have been a positive force, or have they created a dependency for for these? Uh, programs, international programs? The NGOs did not create Ethiopian dependency. They exacerbated it. They exacerbated uh, it. Yeah, Ethiopia has a long history of receiving 
um, aid from the Western world, particularly the United States. If you look in, in the period after uh, 1950s, especially until the fall of the emperor, Ethiopia was one of the largest recipients of U.S. aid uh, on the continent, perhaps um, the largest recipient of aid. So that, that aid, uh, uninterrupted, made definitely Ethiopian economy um, uh, dependent on what comes from what comes from outside. I, I don't get into the details of every era, but during the military regime, uh, Ethiopia shifted alliances to the eastern part of the world because of this um, issue of the Cold War, uh, which fought its war in most cases on the continent of Ethiopia, uh, on the continent of Africa. And Ethiopia, the military regime in Ethiopia sided with um, Russia, and it got its military aid and, and other forms of aid from Russia. And the suspension uh, of that aid exposed the military regime to the attack of the rebels, and it did not last even for a year when Russia stopped uh, the aid. It had fallen. Uh, particularly, the suspension of military aid made it very, very weak. Now, today, if you look at the Ethiopian economy, Aid occupies a very large, large uh, portion. How uh, large? A large portion, a very large portion. Okay. Ethiopia pays for its bureaucracy, uh, pays about 55 to 56% of uh, salary of uh, civil servants from uh, foreign donations, from wow. foreign uh, aids. Uh, and because of droughts, sustaining droughts in uh, some parts of the country, um, there were... Uh, a good number of the populations that live on handouts from, from uh, the western part of the country. Um, that is why the, the influence that comes from the outside is also important. The decision that may, is made in Washington or the decision which is made in London about Ethiopia becomes important or the decision about Ethiopia which is decided in Brussels becomes important that's a great segment that's a great segue to our next uh segment in which we're going to talk about the international sort of uh view uh and attention to ethiopia let's take a break here stay with me at and dr dinka as we get into the perspective Dr. Dinka, we started talking about decisions, international decisions from Washington, from Brussels, from London, and the enormous aid that um, that Ethiopia has received historically and uh, perhaps even now. So with everything else that's going on in the news now, particularly Afghanistan, it's on everyone's mind, do you think the world is paying enough attention to Ethiopia? And if not, do you think it should? Very important question. The world is not paying enough attention to Ethiopia. It's not. Um, and the world should pay more attention to Ethiopia. And I have a reason for this. Attention, do you mean more aid or also news coverage or both? Not 
at this time. What Ethiopia needs now is to be saved from itself. Ethiopia is destroying itself and it, it needs to be saved from itself. That is what I, I, need, I, I mean foreign um, support. Um, two years ago, there was time for all Ethiopia's political parties or political groups or influencers to meet and resolve their issue. Now it is too late. They cannot do that alone today. Look, for example, Tigray. Tigray was invaded by Ethiopian National Army, by Amara Regional Special Forces, and regional militia from every part of the country in the name of Ethiopia. Imagine a single small region in the north of the country invaded in the name of Ethiopian sovereignty, like it is not in Ethiopia, like, like a certain enemy. <laughs> like it's if a different you, country. Like it is a different country. If you watch what, what the prime minister and his colleagues talk, talks about on media, if you watch what Ethiopian media outlets talks about today, it, it sounds like Ethiopia is going to confront certain foreign enemy, but it is only Tigray in the What Are the Tigray trying to secede? Is that what was happening? Tigray never tried to secede. I see. It never tried to succeed, especially now. It, it never tried. It wanted to keep its autonomy. It's a hard-won autonomy. It's, it's a autonomy. Very, its autonomy was hard-won. They paid over 60,000 kids in the war effort fighting against the military regime between 1975 and 1991. That was enormous. A generation was sacrificed to keep their identity, to keep their regional autonomy. They cannot simply lay off their regional autonomy simply because Abiy Ahmed wished to do that. <laughs> so Tigray, I'm just using one example by the way. Tigray is not sure. the only place. Sure. Tigray cannot trust any political group to sit on table and discuss about national issues. Everybody in the country, I mean, Every regional entity, governmental entities, campaigned against the Tigray. So Tigray cannot sit on table unless there is a foreign negotiator or, or a group of foreign negotiators. So is Oromia, by the way, about a third of the country's population and, and about two thirds of Ethiopia's um, uh, territory. Uh, falls under Oromia. The, the same thing happened in Oromia, but it couldn't get enough, enough attention. No, let me bring my point. The world should pay attention because there is a serious danger. What's Perhaps the danger? Very serious danger. I can see a very serious danger. If you know what happened in Rwanda in 1994, if you know what happened in the 1940s in Germany, if you know what happened in 1915 in Italy, that kind, oh, wow. of, cloud, that kind of cloud is very thick on Ethiopia's air today. So, Are you talking about genocide then? Right. Perfectly. That is what is going on in Tigray, literally. That is a cloud um, um, very much coming close to Oromia.
very much coming close to Benishangul region because the government in Ethiopia today, particularly the federal government, is not only power hungry, it's also against identities of people. If you know the details of what it did in Tigray, the government of Abi is willing to, is. Commit, to commit genocide on any group in the country. Wow. Is that the federal is government, uh, Dr. Dinka, your suggestion that a foreign uh, entity, be it UN or another country, comes in and helps broker some sort of uh, uh, peace or some sort of agreement, is the federal government open to that possibility? It's not. That's yeah. why they fall into what is very important. It's not willing. Okay. That is why Tigray is expanding its war efforts outside Tigray because it's under siege today. In Tigray, the government shut off telecommunication, banking, water service, electricity, literally everything. It, the, the aid cannot get into Tigray today. Because of what? Because of government siege. Tigray wants to break that siege and wants to survive as people. That is why more attention must be given to uh, Ethiopia. Um, Dr. Denka, if you wanted our audience to remember just one point about Ethiopia, what would that be? Ethiopia is a country of nations. And that's both beautiful and also created, creates a lot of predicaments, right? Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, Dr. Denka, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. You're welcome back to the Peel.News anytime. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us. What's your perspective? The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At the Peel.News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at the Peel.News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past. Rather, is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our current events. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving comments about this episode on our Instagram page at the peel.news. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. 
Until next time, this is Adele with Appeal.News.